In 2 Samuel chapter 15, we see King David being terribly mistreated by his own son, Absalom. Uh, this is the same Absalom that we saw just previously in the previous couple chapters be the very one who uh, killed his half-brother in cold blood out of revenge. Now, uh, David failed in the fact that he didn't try to in any way, shape, or form enact justice on his son. Instead, he just kind of ignored it altogether, invited him back into Jerusalem, invited him back into the household. And one would think that because of all this kindness that had been showed to Absalom, that he would want to reciprocate that same kindness to David, to his father. But in chapter 15, the chapter we're studying this morning, we find out that he doesn't do that at all. In fact, he does just the opposite. In chapter 15, we see a, detail, a detailed plan by Absalom to take not only David's throne, but to also take his life. And then the second half of chapter 15, we see David's response so first half of the chapter is Absalom's uh, rebellion against David, and then the second part of it is how David responds to the mistreatment of Absalom. Now, on Tuesday, I, I, as I was studying this after Monday, I got to Tuesday, and I got kind of really excited because I thought to myself, now this message is really going to preach. People are going to love this because this is about being mistreated by other people and how you and I are to respond to the mistreatment of other people. And I said, as soon as I announce that, there are going to be people that are going to sit there and go, that's me, that's me. I'm being mistreated. And it's very easy for us to be able to remember and to be able to see and to be able to feel that we're constantly being mistreated by those who are around us. We don't really remember oftentimes us meeting Mis, mis, mistreating other people, but when people have mistreated us, we remember. And so I was all excited, but uh, somewhere between Tuesday and Wednesday morning, I realized that that would be all good and dandy, but that's not what this passage is about. This passage is really not at all about how we should respond to difficulties inflicted on us by others, but it's rather it illustrates how we are to respond to the difficulties that we have inflicted upon ourselves. See, this is primarily about us suffering from the consequences of our own sin. And it teaches us that we too are to be faithful in responding to that type of suffering. See, all of us here have suffered at the hands of other people, correct? At the, at the misgivings of other people, the mistreatment of other people, we know that. And the Bible says a great deal about how we are to respond faithfully to that. It's full of, of, of passages that teach us to, to extend, uh, extend love for, for, for hate that is shown to you, to be able to turn the other cheek, to be able to walk the extra mile. It, it, that tells us how we as believers are to walk faithfully when mistreated by other people. But here we see that the Word of God also teaches and tells us that it is vitally important that you and I also are faithful and respond faithfully when we are suffering because of our own sin, because of the consequence of our own sin. And remember this, this is what David is doing, the rape of his daughter, the murder of his son Amnon, and now the attempted overflow of his son Samson. Yes, people are, are treating him in a bad way, but the truth is we know from reading the whole book that these are the very consequences of, the, of his sin against Bathsheba and her, her husband. 
And so what we want to do, two things this morning. First of all, we want to look at Absalom's rebellion. Just going to share that, kind of like some background information. Uh, Then we want to look at David's response. And when we get to David's response, that's when we're going to give you kind of four points of application that's really going to demonstrate how you and I can faithfully respond to the consequences of our own sin. So let's look at this first of all. Let's look at Absalom's rebellion. It wouldn't be hard if you've been following this story at all to have a little bit of pity on Absalom. Yes, he was a murderer. Yes, he murdered his half-brother. But if you know the story, he murdered his half-brother because his half-brother did what? Raped his sister. And so even though none of us would ever condone those actions and that murder, we know that it was wrong before God, at least we can begin to see the tragedy of such a story. We can imagine the anger and the hurt that he must have gone through to see this kind of thing inflicted upon his own, uh, on, his own, on his own sister. And so it would be easy to kind of chalk this up as, you know, this is a tragic story of a young man who just let his anger get away from him, and there's no winners in this and to feel bad. But Chapter 15 doesn't allow us to feel any pity for him because after killing his own half-brother, now in chapter 15, he begins to make plans to kill his own father. So what it teaches us is that he killed his own brother not because it was just a a moment uh, of anger gone wrong. Instead, it's because this man has a rebellious, murderous heart. This man is a sinner. And the reason that he wants to kill his father is because he wants his throne. He wants to rule and reign supreme. He wants to be sovereign over the kingdom. He wants to do what he wants to do, and he doesn't want anybody else telling him otherwise. So that's why he wants to be king. And so if you want to be king, you have to look the role. You have to, t- you have to, you have to look like a king. And so he goes down to his local chariot dealer, and he gets a chariot, and one fitting for a king with, with HD stereos and all that other kind of stuff. Stereos, it's not stereos. Video, whatever. A really, really cool chariot. And uh, so he gets this. He gets the coolest horses he can. And he puts out 50 soldiers out in front of him. And and they begin to march through the city. And anybody who would see this would think, surely the king is coming. And when he would pass by, it wasn't David. Instead, it was his son, Absalom. And, And people would sit there and go, well, he's not the king. But he sure does look like a king. And it would begin to plant some seeds in their mind. And to think of him that he might very well be king. Well, he not only looked the part, but he also acted the part. The Bible says very early in the morning, he would go right outside of the gate. And as people began to travel into the city from, from other places, from other regions, he would greet them and he goes, how y'all doing? He's kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit Southern right now after the music that we played this morning. So I'm just going to go with it. And so, uh, and so he goes, how y'all doing? Where y'all from? And they sat there and go, well, we're up from, you know, the northern part of Judah. And he goes, hey, I got some kid up there in northern, in that northern part of Judea. He goes, I've got my uncle Tony, and he owns Tony's donkeys. And he goes, oh, we know Tony. We bought all our donkeys from him. And they go, what a small world, isn't it? And they go, well, what brings you to these parts? Well, they, they sit back and they tell him, well, we're here because i got to be honest with you. We've got a lawsuit uh, on, and we need the king. We need to get to the king. We need somebody to listen to this lawsuit because we need somebody to deal with this. Well, Absalom playing the part sits there and goes, well, tell me all about it. Tell me everything, please. And so he begins to listen, and he begins to nod. Oh, yes, I understand. Oh, yes. This is all, and he says to them, this is all good and right. This guy's good, right? He knows exactly what he's doing. He doesn't hear a case, no matter how obnoxious it might be or how, how, how off it might be, that he doesn't agree with. 
He agrees with everybody. You know, I just want to let you know, it's always much easier to be able to affirm people's complaints when you don't have to do anything about it, right? And so this is that guy, like a slimy politician. Not all politicians are slimy. Some of them are godsends, but there are some slimy ones, and they're just sitting back going, you know what? I got to tell you this. Uh, if, if, I was, if I was elected, uh, I, see your, I see your pain, and I would certainly do something about it. Well, this is what he's doing. In fact, he begins to actually see say to everybody, if I were the ruler, if I were the king, then certainly everybody, including yourself, would ultimately get justice in the end. And so he's doing all this for what purpose? To try to win the hearts of the people. And it even gets better than that. Because right when people are like, man, this is the greatest guy in the world, and they want to bow down to him, he's, no, 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 don't do that. That's, that's for kings. That's not for me. I'm, I'm an every man's king, every man's kind of guy. Don't bow. And he would give him a hug and he would give them a kiss, and he would send their way. So you imagine what begins to go around. Hey, I met the king's son, and i got to be honest with you, he's more of a king to me than David has ever been. He's right out there with the people. He's an everyday kind of guy, and he saw that people have done me wrong, and if he was king, he would do something about it. And David hasn't done anything to me. He just sits up in that palatial palace, sipping whatever he sips, and he's just doing his own thing. I need a king like this. And so you see that all of this begins to work. And he does this, the Bible says, for four long years he does this. And he just begins to wear people down until finally he begins to send out these secret messages. And these secret messages are telling everybody, when you eventually hear the trumpet sound, then say that Absalom is the king of Hebron. And then he tells his dad he knows it's time to make his move. So he tells his dad, hey, listen, i got to go over to here to Hebron because a long time ago, remember when things weren't right before between you and I, Dad, when, when you know, I'd killed your son and things weren't real good, and then you invited me back in? I had made a vow to God that said that if, if you were to take me back, then, then I would do X, Y, and Z for God. And so now I need to go and do this. Four years later, where's the time gone? I need to go and be able to do this. Well, David, not wanting to keep his son from holding a vow to God, he allows him to go. Well, when he goes, he just so happens to take 200 of David's top administrative men, and he also takes his lead advisor, his lead counselor with him. Why is he doing that? He's doing it because when he declares war against David, now David has no one to turn to for help. All of this is a meticulous plan to undermine the king. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like this guy Absalom. In fact, I think that that's exactly what the author is trying to do. I think the author is trying to paint this guy in a way where we become offended for David and disgusted by the actions of Absalom. You, why would he do that? He's doing it, one, I think, now notice on one level, he's doing it for the purpose of you and I to understand the grief and the pain that David must experience when he found out that his own son was planning his own demise and his own overthrow. So it's that consequence of sin showing the pain of the consequence of sin. But I think there's something else. I think it's more than just letting us know the pain of the consequence of sin. I think he's trying to give us a picture of what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God. It is a rebellion against king, the king, our Lord of lords and our king of kings, Jesus Christ. That's what sin is. 
We often take sin so loosely and so lightly and think, well, it's just a mistake, it's just an honest, honest mistake, or that's just simply what I struggle with, or I'm really, really tired, that's the way that I act the way that I do, or that's the way that I've been brought up. And the truth is, what the author is trying to do is let us know that sin, in fact, is rebellion against God. I think what he's doing is something similar to what he did with David. Do you remember when David had committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, then killed her husband? You remember this part in the story, correct? And David is kind of oblivious. He's just kind of living his life. And the prophet Nathan comes to him. And when the prophet Nathan comes to him, he begins to tell him a story. And he begins to tell him a story about how this rich man had all of these lambs and all of these sheep and all these herds and flocks. And that there was one man that had just one little ewe lamb and that was just like a little family member, treated it like a daughter. And what did he do? The rich man took that man's lamb and he killed it and he served it up as a barbecue sandwich to a friend that was visiting him. And David is hearing the story. And what happens to David? He becomes more and more righteously angry. And he sits there and he says, that man needs to be judged. And what is Nathan do? He stands up and he goes, you are that man. I think the author might be doing the same thing with us just a little bit to where as we read through this story and how slimy Absalom is, remember that David's kingdom represents the very kingdom of God. So those who are against David are against God themselves. He's letting us know that, that the sin that we commit about him is no small thing. It is rebellion against God. And he wants us to get to the point to where we are not only offended by God, but we are disgusted by our own sin. Until you and I come to the point that we see sin for what it truly is and are actually disgusted by it, do you think that there's any chance of you ever coming to God and repenting of it? No. So he's trying to give us this picture. He shows Absalom's rebellion to show us what our sin is like before God. Now that's Absalom's, that's Absalom's rebellion. Now let's look at David's response. So just to be clear, understand, a lot of bad stuff is happening here. Would you agree? If you found out one day that your son was planning your demise, that would probably be bad news that day. But what I don't want you to miss is this. I don't want you to miss the fact that, yes, they're doing evil things to him, but ultimately, within the context of this book, this is the consequences that came from his own sin. God said through the prophet Nathan back in chapter 12 in verse 10, he said, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David understands all of this is ultimately happening because he blew it. And he's suffering and he's down. But the question is, how do you respond? Well, the Bible says, as you and I are as believers, we are always to respond in what? In faith to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So again, the Bible gives us all kinds of illustrations on how we are to respond when, when people are just mistreating us, but it also gives us here how we are to respond when the pain that we're going through is actually self-inflicted. So let's take a look at how David responded in faith. First of all, he responded with an active faith. And active faith. In verse 13, what we find here now is that a messenger actually comes to David with really bad news. He says, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. 
And David immediately recognizes that his family, himself, and those that have entrusted themselves to him are in imminent danger, and he's got to do something about it. So he instantly moves. In verse 14, the Bible says that David said to his servant, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Do you understand what David's doing here? What he's doing is what he should have been doing long before, before he fell, before the consequences of his sin begin to be felt. He began to lead his family. He began to protect his family. He began to take them out of the way of danger. That is not what he was doing that night when he was up on, uh, uh, on the palace roof, when he was looking at Bathsheba as she, was, as she was bathing. He wasn't thinking of his family. He wasn't thinking of leading them in righteousness. He wasn't thinking of, of, uh, of purity and, and the safety of his home. He was thinking about himself. So that's what he was doing. And then when he sent somebody to retrieve her, and then the Bible says that he had committed adultery with her. He didn't have his family in mind at all. So guess what he's doing now? It's a clear change. He is experiencing the consequences. Now he's beginning to do the very thing that he was supposed to be doing in the beginning, that is to look after his family and to be able to, over, to, to, be able to protect them. It's where you and I need to be. It's not supposed to be when, when, when you come and you begin to experience the consequences of sin, what's easy to do is just sit back and go, you know what, I'm guilty of this, and I'm just going to let the consequences come, and we just need to take our licking and just let us take, it, take us down. But, but, but faith is not to be inactive. It's to be active. It's to begin to do. True repentance is, hey, I didn't do this before. I'm in this pit. Now I need to do what is right for God, what I failed to do before. And this is what happens. This, this actually happened to me just yesterday. It was a reminder of this. Um, one of our children had, it was down to the park. They were walking the dog. And, and our neighbors, just a few, few doors down, uh, they're about to move. They're about to go uh, somewhere else. And, and, uh, and, and they just began to talk to, to well, it was my son. And, and as they began to talk with them, for an hour, for an hour, my son began to just share the gospel with them. And he began to sit back, and they began to have all these questions. And, and they said, you know, this is the stuff. Look, we, we kind of have more of a Jehovah's Witness uh, or Mormon background. I forget which it is. And he says, but if what you're saying is right, I want to know about that. I don't want to know about false things. I want to know what is ultimately true. And my son said, well, look, look, I, I've, I've told you all of this, but if you want to sit down with my dad, he would be certainly happy to be able to sit down and talk with you more about it. And he says, well, he goes, the funny thing that you say about that, he says, because I've tried to kind of talk with your dad and we've talked about some things, but it's interesting to me because he's never brought this up with me. Never brought this up with me. And of course, I don't think my son was trying to cause me pain, but certainly I felt pain to be able to sit there and say, you know, I failed in this. I've tried I've tried to be a witness to the people within our community. I've tried to share. I've got to be honest with you. I'm batting zero in that. I've shared the gospel with many of them. And, and, and with many of them, many of them just kind of give you the wave now. They never even talk to you. They're just kind of like, you're strange. Get away from me, right? And that happens and nobody's come. But I think there's come a time where I just kind of sat there and thought, well, you know, I've given it a try. That's it. And, and I haven't been as sensitive to that. And so yesterday, I was broken for half of the day. It was just gut-wrenching. Just sitting there to know that I had failed and I had not done what God had ultimately called me to do. What do you do then? Just feel bad for the rest of the night? 
Just get up and say, hey, guys, you know, sometimes you just feel garbage, like garbage because you did the wrong thing. Just stay down and keep feeling that way. No, you know what you do? You set up an appointment with that same guy, and you sit there and go, I'm going to do what I should have been doing before. I'm going to be active in my faith to be obedient as I should have been in the beginning. Amen? It's the same thing for you. It's not to be able to sit back and just take your lickings. It's for you to be able to sit there and go, here's where I failed. I'm changing that now. I'm going to act in faith and do what God had called me to do to the first place. There's a second thing. There's a supported faith. And i got to say to you, uh, this supported faith is more about what God does than what we do, but we do respond to it. Let me explain. Uh, for, for David, what we read in verse 18 is that we read about the evacuation there of David and his family and his followers. They begin to funnel out to safety. They begin to lead. And at one place, not sure where, but David stops and he begins to watch everybody who's with him as they begin to pass by. And he begins to take note of who's leading them and the different groups of people. And his, and his, and his, and his, and his focus falls on a man by the name of Itai the Gittite. What a, what a great name. Wonderful names in the Bible. This is my son, Itite, the Gittite. Oh, very cool, very cool. I don't know why he's beaten up every day, but uh, could be because of his name. Uh, Itite, the Gittite, and, and here he is. And, and two things you need to know about Itite, um, the Gittite. Uh, what you need to know about him is, number one, is he's a Philistine. He's a Philistine. Now, this is very interesting. You know the Philistines. The Philistines are the arch enemies of who? Of Israel. David has killed a ton of them, including a really, really big one. And uh, he's killed all of them, and, and, and they're their enemies. And yet this guy is one of the ones who are following him. Uh, number two, what, we, what you need to know about him is he had only been in Jerusalem for one day when all of this stuff fell apart. He had came, come the day before, he showed up, and all of a sudden, they're like, we got to evacuate, we got to get out here, Absalom wants to kill us. And so he gets with his group, with his family, and they begin to usher out of the city. Well, David all of a sudden approaches him and says, hey, um, got a question for you, my friend, I type the Gittite. Um, I, I got a just question for you real quick. Um, why are you with us. And in fact, here, here's a better thing. Why don't you just go back to Jerusalem and just kind of hang out with Absalom? Now, he's doing it for one of two reasons. Number one, he's doing it because either he's afraid that he may turn on him in the midst of battle if he goes against Absalom, or number two, he genuinely feels bad for this guy. He's thinking for himself, hey, bro, I brought this all upon myself. All the suffering that I brought upon myself, you weren't even a part of this. Here you come up showing another day. There's no reason for you to take part in what I've done in my own suffering. Why don't you just go back and serve the other king? And at this particular point, our friend, our friend the Gittite says to David, he says, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, whoever, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will be your servant. And David said to Itai, he says, go, go then, pass on. So, so I take, he says, the, the Hittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. Here's basically what he did. He goes, I am sticking with you for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and health till death do us part. Now, what is crazy about this is the abstract, and you're supposed to see it. His own son who he has given every imaginable grace and kindness, showed kindness to, now wants to kill him. This arch enemy of David now wants to give his very life for him. We're supposed to see that contrast within the text. But what does this mean? It simply means when we blow it, there is often a desire to push people away. There is often a desire for us to just be alone. I messed up, I blew it, 
the more public it is, the more audacious the sin is, the more you and I just want to be a recluse, step away, we're, either because we're embarrassed by it, or maybe we just feel like we just, this needs to be self-inflicted. We don't want to drag anybody down in our pain or involve anybody else. But what this passage teaches us is what we find is there will be some that will abandon because of the nature of of the sin. There may be a sin that may break a relationship that you have, and it's not even possible for that sin to be, or for that relationship to maintain. It's kind of what we see here a little bit. If you were to look back at Ahithophel, um, that was actually his main man, his main counselor. And what this text doesn't tell us, but the rest of Second Samuel does, is the reason most likely he went and began to follow Absalom was because he is the grandfather of Bathsheba. And so there are some times that some relationships we're not going to be able to restore because of the sin and it, the nature of that sin. But here's the beauty of it. God is so gracious to be able to leave for us and to be able to have people for us, sometimes the most unlikely people who will stick with us thick and thin to be able to bear the weight of our sin and to be there for us come difficulty or not. And that's a demonstration of God. It's a demonstration of God's grace to let you know you're not alone in this. You're not washed up and you're not useless Instead, he sends these people in your life, maybe a pastor, maybe a friend, maybe a spouse, and they have no reason for being there. They have every reason to be able to walk out, but because of God's grace, they're walking with you. We need more of these Gittites, do we not? And so what happens often, you just say, well, where is the response of David's faith? What's his part in this? His faith is the fact that he actually received it. The fact that God said, I've got somebody for you to be able to be and to be able to help and to be able to support and to be able to go through this with you, and he actually received it. Our problem often is, is that we don't receive it. If you're falling into sin, if you're experiencing consequences of sin, if marriage is falling apart, if these different, different, different difficulties are facing you, God has placed different people in your life as an act of grace to be able to walk alongside of you. It's his grace. So the Bible tells us here that there's an active faith there's a supported faith, and then there is a, a dependent faith. Notice in verse 24, we read about two priests, one by the name of Abiathar and one by the name of Zadok. And these are two priests, and so they do what a priest would naturally do. They're about to get out of Jerusalem, so you want to make sure, just like moms, I love moms that do this when they go, well, if there's ever a fire, we need to make sure that we get this and we get that, and those pictures, those are important. Look, if there's a fire, you just get out, all right? That's what you do. But these guys were like, you know, we need the ark. Don't forget the ark. Let's grab the ark. And I have to think it's kind of because it's kind of like, well, you know, in difficult times, you need a little bit of God with you, right? And so they take a little bit of God with them, and they're traveling along. And you'll see this with people. But David doesn't have anything to do with this. In verse 25, it says, Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back to the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back, and he will let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. This is a dependent faith. Here's what he's doing. He's depending fully on God to do whatever it is that God wants him to do. He's not trying to use God. He just wants to be obedient to him. He's failed. He feels the consequences. Now what he's saying to God is, God, my only desire from you truthfully is just simply to be obedient. You do what you want to do. 
Lord, I would love for you to be able to take the consequences away, and if that's it, I'll worship you. But you may choose not to take the consequences away, and you know what? I will worship you. It's up to you. Why is this so important? Because you and I have this terrible tendency not to worship God, but to use God. Things begin to fall apart, and all of a sudden, our attendance becomes better. We become more faithful in giving. All of a sudden, we begin to change our our, our station off the classic rock station, and now we're listening to more joy and K-love, and we're singing all these things. And the reason that we're doing is not a demonstration of repentance and belief and obedience to God. It's just I need to somehow manipulate Him to get Him to be good to us. If you're suffering because of some type of sin, it's certainly okay to say, God, I would love to be out of this. I would love for you to be able to take it away. But true faith sits there and says, it's not going to be about me trying to manipulate you and try to do good things just so that you get me out of this. Because the truth is, it's just that I want you. I just want to be obedient. You do whatever it is that you desire for my life. That's a dependent life. That's dependent faith. Let me give you one more thing. An encouraged faith encouraged faith. faith. If you look at verse 30, there's this beautiful picture of David, and he's going up to the Mount of Olives, and as he's going up to the Mount of Olives, he's weeping. He's got dirt in his hair. He's, he's got his clothes ripped. It was, just a, it was just a sign for everybody to know this person was truly grieving. And as he's going through, he, the word comes to him that Ahithophel fell comes to him, remember that was his main counselor, he finds out that he's actually turned his back on him and now he's serving alongside of Absalom. And certainly this was painful, so David does whatever he possibly can. In verse 31, he says, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. I don't know what to do about that prayer, to be honest with you. There are these things called... uh, uh, There's prayers in the Bible, precatory psalms that we read where it's kind of like put fire down on them and destroy them and rip out their liver. And it says all these, I don't really know what to do with those prayers, uh, to be honest with you. I'm not so sure we're still supposed to pray those. But David is desperate. So he's like, hey, make the really smart guy really, really dumb and give him really, really advice all of a sudden, really bad advice all of a sudden. And so what's interesting to me is whether this is right or not, God is gracious to him. And he hears him and he responds to his prayer. And the Bible says here, he says, all of a sudden, a young man by the name of Hushai, again, wonderful name, Hushai comes up to him, and, 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 and he's got dirt in his hair, and his clothes are ripped as well. He's mourning along with him. And David sees this as an answer to God, his prayer, almost instantaneously, an answer to his prayer. He says, but he says to him, he says, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, uh, O king, as I have been your father's servant in the time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat me, you will defeat for me the, the counsel of uh, uh, Anithophel. Uh, Anith- Why am I messing these words up? I need, I need Where's our associate pastor, Ryan? He can help me with these names. And anyway, so he sits there and he goes, you can help me with this. Now, God doesn't answer the question exactly the way that he wants him to answer this. Here's what happens back in chapter 17. In in chapter 17, what's going to happen is Ahithophel is actually going to give Absalom really good sound advice. But the king is not going to take it because Hushai is going to get in his ear and he's going to say, that's bad advice, you need to do this. And so God was in it by him rejecting the good advice that Ahithophel had ultimately given him. So here's, here, you say, what is he doing? It's just demonstrating the goodness of God. Despite all this sin, even in the midst of all the consequences, you know what it tells him? That God's there. 
that he hasn't abandoned him? That he doesn't love him any less? That he still hears his prayer? He still responds to him? He's still his child? And isn't that the encouragement that we need? I know about me when I fail in that sin and, 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 I, and I sit back and I'm feeling the consequences of my sin, I begin to wonder, does God love me just a little bit less? Answer, he cannot love me any less. He does not love me any less. Do you discipline your children? Some of you have seen your kids do. You don't discipline your children. <laughs> and I'm... You would say that same thing with mine because my kids, for whatever reason, don't wear shoes. They all run around the entire building. Nobody's got shoes on. True story. Somebody came up to somebody one time in our church and basically said, hey, I saw that little child and I feel like I need to buy their parents some shoes for that child. And they're like, oh, that's the pastor's kid. And so <laughs> this is wonderful. So anyway, I don't, I don't know what happens to them. And here's what's crazy. We have a million sets of shoes at home. I don't know why they don't wear them. I don't understand what's happening. And I'm completely off subject. But the, the, point, the point with this whole thing is this, is that is you discipline your child because you love them. We've heard that quote all the time, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. That's not really even what it says. It, what it says is if you don't discipline your child, you hate your child. God does not hate you. The discipline of the Lord is often going to come. We're going to experience sometimes consequences. Sometimes it's going to take them away. Sometimes it's going to be in short periods of time. Sometimes it may be much more long-lasting. But it's because of God's love. And if you're in the midst of just experiencing that, I want you to be faithful and I want you to be encouraged to know God doesn't love you any less. He hears you. And what's beautiful about this is later on, God answers that question, and he's going to do the same thing with you. As you begin to seek him and you begin to pray, you're going to see him move in your life. You're going to see him work in your life. And you're just going to be an encouragement, once again, that God hasn't gone anywhere. I might have, but God hasn't gone anywhere. Now, there's something. Let me, let me sum this up for you. Let me, let me just give you a couple points. Number one, let us this morning recognize that sin is rebellion against God. It is so serious. It's, it's when you and I just basically say, I want to rule my own life. I want to do my own way. And it doesn't matter what sin it is. That is at the key of all of it. Let me say number two, let us respond faithfully to the difficulties we face when we experience the consequences of our own sin. For us, for some of us this morning, if you're experiencing that, be active in your faith. Do what you know to do is right. Don't be inactive. Number two, accept that supported faith, the people that God has placed around you to be able to help you through this difficult time. Accept that as the grace of God. Number three, have a dependent faith. Don't go around trying to use God, but sit back and go, God, I don't want to go through this, this but you know what? I'm going to follow you no matter what. Whether you take it away or whether you don't, God, it's you that I desire more than anything else. And then finally, have an encouraged faith. Know that God hasn't left you, hasn't forsaken you, will never leave you nor forsake you. He's with you. He doesn't love you any less. Now, there's something. Let me, let me sum up with this just very quickly. There's one thing that I want to point your attention to in verse 30. And the author keeps doing this, and it's not hard. I don't think I'm making it up. But look at verse 30, if you will, once again. It says, but David went up, uh, up uh, the ascent of Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. When I read that over and over again, there was just one thing that came to me, and that is the book of Luke. If you look at the book of Luke, right before Jesus was to die the very next day, he went to a garden to pray. The garden was at the Mount of Olives, and he went to be able to pray. And as he prayed, the book of Luke tells us is that as he ascended the Mount of Olives, he also there, he began to cry on the Mount of Olives. 
And so what it reminds us a couple things is it reminds us that there's this distinction that this is David, but one day there would be the son of David who would ultimately come. And there we see that David ascended the Mount of Olives weeping as he went. He was grieved over his sin and the consequences of it. Many years later, the son of David, Jesus Christ, on that night before Jesus' death, he went to the Garden of the Mount of his, and he wept, not because of consequences of his, his sin, but because the devastating consequences of the sin of the people that he loved and the heavy cost of those sins. When Jesus began to weep, he weeped because he saw families being destroyed. He saw people falling headlong into hell. He saw people doing things and hurting each other, all the consequences of these sins. He saw people suffering. The suffering was beyond anything that you and I could ultimately comprehend because he understood it fully at a depth that you and I never would. And so here he is, and he's weeping over this, but he also understands the cost. David understood the cost of his sin. He understood the destructive power of it. Jesus Christ, when he begins to weep, he's, the difference is he's not weeping over his own sin and the destruction of his own sin, but the destruction of the people that he loves. And he knows the price of it. Why? Because he paid the price on the cross. So here is the key of what we need to remember. We need to understand that the crushing judgment of God did, in fact, fall on him, giving us the hope that it would never fall on us. You and I might experience temporal consequences of sin here, but the ultimate condemnation of sin has been taken forever for here and for there. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your word and the power of your word. God, we thank you for leading us in it. We thank you for expository preaching where we probably would never even preach a message like this, but we see it unfolding right before our eyes. I pray that we would respond to it in faith. We love you in your precious name. We pray, man. Would you stand? We're going to have just a moment or two of, of, of prayer, and, and this is a time of response. Here's kind of how we do this. If, if you want to just come to the aisle and pray, it's, it's there for you. I'm going to be here. I would love to pray with you. If you've got a question, I'd love to try to answer it. If you need more counseling, we'd love to be able to get some help for you with that. If you want to know more about Christ and more about this salvation that we keep talking about, we want to make sure you don't leave without understanding that. So let's, let, let's go ahead and respond at this time. Go ahead, brother.
Well, amen. Right? Uh, well, look at that. An hour and seven minutes. It's amazing how fast time flies by in here, right? The only place it doesn't fly by is if you're in the nursery at this point for an hour and seven minutes. It's like the place where time stands still. So anyway, but uh, listen, we, we, we love you. We, um, uh, we're so blessed by you. Thank you so much for being people of the book. Um, I know I don't always get it right. It's not for a lack of trying and seeking God, and, but God is so good to reveal us the truth in his word, and we're grateful. We just want to be transformed by it. We want to submit ourselves to it. But before we leave, as always, I just want to encourage you to just to welcome each other, if you don't mind. I know sometimes that could be a little bit awkward, and uh, if that frightens you, it's all right. Just run out of the building. It's okay. Um, but, but remember, everybody, you don't have to know everybody in a church, but you need to know somebody, and you could very well be that person just to demonstrate the love. It's, it, it's, it's disingenuous to me to preach on the love and the grace and the mercy of God without having a congregation showing the love and the mercy and the grace of God. They must go hand in hand. So let us be that church together. All right? Well, listen, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Dear Jesus, we thank you again for today. We thank you for your goodness. I pray as we leave that we will leave in faith that God, if, if and when, um, if we are now or when we are being chastised or we're experiencing some consequences for our own sin, I pray that we will respond in faith because without faith, it is impossible to please you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. All right, we'll see you all later. Have a good one.